on 30th of January 1933, Adolf Hitler was made Chancellor of Germany. On the 9th of February that year, just two weeks later at Oxford University, there was a very famous debate on the issue that this House will in no circumstances fight for its king and country. And the motion passed 275 votes to 153, causing not only a national but an international scandal. Here were the students totally unprepared for the world that they were going to serve. Six years later, this group of entitled young Englishmen were confronted with a call to fight for king and country, to confront one of the most monstrous empires in human history in a fight that was to the death. Today, we're watching from a great distance Ukraine in a fight to the death as they resist the incursion of the Russian army. War is the awful reality of human existence. Psalm 137 finishes with the horror verse of the Bible. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's brilliant poetry, shocking, shocking us in its crude barbarity, leaving us with a dangling emphatic image that makes us want to recoil in horror. What can get into a man even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, especially under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write such a dreadful sentence. It's so shocking that some people want to leave it out of their Bibles. It's so shocking that some commentaries even I read this week said it is impossible to justify it. It's just wrong. Some prayer books leave it out. Some of the Psalms don't have it written to be read as part of church life. I'm still waiting for the hymn to be written on it. People sing the opening verses, even with upbeat versions of the opening verses, but they never get beyond verse 2. They don't get down to verse 9. But there it is. God's word to us, as some of us muttered, Thanks be to God. We must deal with it, not explain it away, but we have to understand it to know how to live by what God says. So today, as the bombs rain down on Ukrainian cities, we're reminded of the destructive force and brutality of warfare. I mean, it was only a few years ago, and it was Syria, and before that, the rise of ISIS. And religion is caught up in these warfares. As some Muslims take the Quran literally, and we're told that the Bible is the same at this point. The savagery of warfare is in the Bible. Look, Psalm 137, verse 9. Now, we live in an area, in an era rather, when people have tried to establish the ethics of war. We talk of war criminals. It's a strange concept because most of what people do in war is criminal. If it were in peacetime, we'd lock them up as criminals. 
but there are things done in war that go beyond war in their barbarity. It's more than just fighting. They're so inhuman, we want to call them war crimes. They're called crimes against humanity, which confuses two meanings of the word crime and elevates humanity as being more important than morality. I mean, the two words of crime, the word actually crime only means outlawed by the government. And seeing we're not yet under world government, it's impossible to have a crime like that. And, but the word crime also has taken to mean exceedingly immoral, even evil, because the world has lost concept of true evil. You see, the concept of humanity as the ultimate intuitive standard of of evil is only used by those who have no absolute morality. When you don't have God to offend or absolute morality to breach, then you think, well, what is the worst thing that could be done? Well, something that is inhuman. But, of course, war is all very human. And what is done in war is classically human. In war... People kill, they maim, they injure, they rape, they pillage. We destroy property and we destroy life. Some do it with inhumane ferocity. Others know that there's a limit that will not let them go quite so far. Some know how to act just to create terror in the community. Others do it to destroy whole civilizations and people, whole ethnic groups with ethnic cleansing or, or genocide, killing every man, woman and child. It's, it's very possible to see excess in war, but it's very hard to develop any genuine ethics in war. But the horror of our verse here is the blessing it bestows on what appears to be one of the worst excesses of war. This horror says, the man who dashes little children's heads on rocks will be blessed, will be happy. I mean, some translations use the word happy here, but happy, of course, is a psychological state of a very sick mind. The verse is saying something much larger and much worse than happy. It's saying blessed. He will be blessed by God. He will have God's favour for doing such a thing. Let's not water it down. Let's not weaken it in any way. So let's turn to the psalm and see what it's saying as a whole. It comes in three moods. Verses one to three, firstly, is the invitation to sing. It's an invitation that, of course, is impossible to accept. The captors want the slave to sing the songs of Zion. The songs of Zion couldn't be sung on request, couldn't be sung while they were slaves in Babylon. How can you sing of Jerusalem and its temple when it's lying in ruins back there in Palestine, when... It's destroyed by the Babylonians, destroyed by the very men who now want me to sing about it. A singing's a matter of joy. I'm in depression. Singing is of Jerusalem. It's a travesty when I'm in Babylon. 
They want me to sing for the very men who besieged the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it and its peoples. Zion was where the temple of God, the wonderful temple of Solomon, stood in its wealth and in its, its glory. But now it's a ruin. The Babylonians had stripped off it of its wealth and broken down its walls and burnt it to ruins. Zion was where the temple of God, that wonderful temple of Solomon, stood as a house of prayer for all peoples. But these peoples, they didn't come to Jerusalem to pray at the temple. This was the place where God met man in the holiness of forgiveness, but now the people of Babylon had defiled it, destroying it as the unique house of Yahweh. How can I possibly sing the songs of Zion that they want to hear. It's a taunt that rubs salt into the deep wounds. It just can't be done. It's not possible. So we look at the second section and come back with me into the mind of the captive as he reflects upon Jerusalem. As he reflects upon Jerusalem as my highest joy, beyond my highest joy, the problem is that we're in a foreign land. Being a foreigner is always an alienating experience, but enslaved in a foreign land is even more than alienating. Being an Israelite whose identity is caught up, living in the promised land of God around his city and around his temple and around his name makes the whole experience depressingly awful. To think of Jerusalem is to remind myself of all that I've lost, of all that we have lost. To sing of Jerusalem for these Babylonian captors and destroyers, for these tormentors, these despoilers, for their joy, for their entertainment, for their rejoicing is to betray my very city, is to betray my very self, is to betray my very God. Jerusalem is the city of God, better than the wonders of the canal system of Babylon. Jerusalem is the very city of God, better than the wealth of Babylon with its hanging gardens and world empire. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is my longing and my homeland. It's the center of the universe. It's the place where God himself dwells with us. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, if I forget the wonderful city of God and settle for the flesh pots of Babylon, may I myself be destroyed. Some, of course, did forget Jerusalem, making a good life for themselves in Babylon. And when the opportunity came home to go home, and they refused to go, they had their children in the best schools, didn't they? They were living in the luxury. They had good water views and boats on the canals. And No, they stayed on in Babylon rather than return to that rubble heap called Jerusalem. But the faithful, the remnant of God, went home to rebuild the city and the temple. And so the psalmist declares, my greatest joy, my highest joy... That which is even higher than my highest joy is that of Jerusalem. 
and all that it stood for, all that it symbolised, the city of God, the temple of God, the people of God, the inheritance of the promised land of God, the very Messiah's throne. And as he remembers his highest joys, he recalls in verses 7 to 9 the enemies of Zion. For the Edomites and the Babylonians went out of their way to destroy that which was his highest joy. I mean, the Edomites remember the descendants of Esau. They were therefore keen to, to destroy. They were therefore the kin of Israel, the distant cousins. But their father Esau didn't value his birthright, sold it for a bowl of soup, lentil soup. And instead of treating the Israelites and their as their brothers, which they should have done, as their cousins, as their kith and kin. No, the Edomites had a bitter antagonism towards Israel. So when the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem, the Edomites egged them on, joining in the plunder of the holy city. The book of Obadiah is written about these and against the Edomites, especially what they did when Jerusalem fell. Verse 10 of Obadiah 1, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that the strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. A few verses later, 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. In verse 7, our psalmist writes, calling upon the Lord to act as judge and witness. <laughs> remember, remember what they did to us. Remember what they did to, to your city. Calling out to the Babylonians, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its very foundations. But then in verses 8 and 9, he turns his attention to the main enemy of God's people, the main enemy of God, the Babylonians. The despoiler is doomed to destruction, for they have raised their hand against God and against his people. They've had the appalling audacity to destroy God's holy temple and God's holy nation. And so the psalmist the psalmist does not call upon God to act so much as to assure the Babylonians that the one who destroys Babylon, as Babylon is certain to be destroyed, that the one who destroys Babylon will be blessed by God because that one will be doing God's work of justice. For as it has been done by the Babylonians to Jerusalem, so shall it be done to them. As they dashed their little ones' heads against the rocks in that willful, barbaric way that was so common in the ancient world's warfare, the aim to destroy not just a city but to terrorise it, and not just to terrorise it but to actually destroy the people's future, to remove the... It's genocidal in its characteristic. It just get rid of the children. There is no future generation here. So, so shall you see your little ones... Babylon, your future will be destroyed in the judgment of God. Clearly, the background of this psalm is important. 
to grasp the, the, the feelings that are being described in this highly emotional and emotive psalm. I mean, it, it's like the word barley. <laughs> to many of us, it meant holiday, exotic pleasures. For many of us, it meant a really bad stomach complaint, barley belly. But then it came to mean bombs and terrorists and senseless waste of life. So what did this Babylonian captivity mean for the Jews? Well, it was the very lowest point in their history. It was the very worst of the worst. They were no longer God's people living in God's promised land. Now they were returned to being slaves, living in a foreign land. We, in a sense, start down there as slaves in Egypt and we rise up to Solomon and David and now we're back down being slaves in Babylon. All their hopes, all their wishes were dashed. They thought of having Jerusalem, having the temple would save them. It did when the Assyrians came, Sennacherib and his armies. But has God saved Jerusalem and the temple from the Assyrians? Surely we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We will be saved from the Babylonians who came and besieged the city for two years and starved the people to the point of mothers eating their own babies. No. Babylon was not to be saved. Sorry, Jerusalem was not to be saved. Jerusalem was to go into captivity for 70 years. And in captivity... They were to accept the judgment of God and not fight against it. They were to look forward to the coming salvation of God, but that was 70 years. God was going to raise up a pagan king, Cyrus, as the Messiah to rescue them, but that was in the future. Now, in the meantime, they had to settle down and work for the peace of Babylon so that they could reproduce a new generation of children, so that they could be, in 70 years' time, a nation able to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. For Babylon was the evil city, the symbol of every evil city, the symbol of the overweening pride of those who defy Yahweh, the city that the prophets declared is doomed to destruction and the condemnation of God. The Jewish captives were not to seek the peace of Babylon so that Babylon would be at peace and be saved. No, Babylon was to be destroyed, absolutely, completely and utterly, never to be raised again. No, no, you're to seek the peace of Babylon when you're under the judgment of God so that you can raise up the children that have been taken from you by the Babylonians in their destruction of Jerusalem. And the fulfilment of the promise came when the Medo-Persian Empire came and destroyed the Babylonians, conquering its people, releasing its slaves, returning the Jews back to its homeland. 
The fulfillment came in the destruction of Babylon, which to this very day lies in ruins, never to be rebuilt, though Saddam tried. But of course, we know that the real fulfillment comes in the, present, in the person of Jesus Christ, whose birth so threatened the king of Judah that what did he do? But kill little boys of Bethlehem, and whose life brought the Jews to declare, we have no king but Caesar. Away from him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Whose death brought an end of the temple. The veil and its wall of hostility, the sacrifice for sins that never took away sins, it was all dealt with by this child, this son, the real fulfilment comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the true temple of God, and the real sacrifice for sins, whose kingdom brings the ultimate destruction of the Babylon, Babylon the Great. The arrival of the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is no temple, for God dwells with his people. And the city of Babylon and all its inhabitants are destroyed forever. For in Jesus we find the final judgment of God upon sin when justice will finally be done for all the people who have been appallingly treated by the wickedness of men. And that's why verse 9 is the crucial verse of the Bible that we mustn't, of this psalm, that we mustn't ignore. We mustn't cut out of our Bibles or prayer books. We mustn't defend its place in the Bible, we must preach it and proclaim it. For those who do such thing will be blessed by God because this is the work of God. So let me give you five consequences of retaining this verse. Firstly, it's a verse that poetically and powerfully captures for us the genuine horror of sin. The verse is not approving of child bashing. It relies for its powerful emotive effect upon the total horror of such an action. If it weren't so horrible, the verse would have no impact. But it is horrible. And it has an awful impact upon any sensitive soul. Indeed, it's picking up one of the very worst features of the barbarian warfare to highlight the nature of sin and the requirement of justice. I mean, it could have picked up rape. It could have picked up impaling people. It could have picked up crucifying people or beheading people. But it chose this particular way of warfare, which was so common in the ancient world, referred to half a dozen different times in the Old Testament, of smashing the heads of the next generation of the little children and in so doing it's conveying the horror of the destruction of Jerusalem and claiming that in comparison to these wicked men in their bestial destruction those who do the same thing to them will be called blessed by God for destroying the enemy of God's people for destroying the enemy of God no no it takes seriously the genuine horror of sin and it teaches us, secondly, the retributive nature of justice. For notice verse 9 illustrating verse 8. Look at the second half of verse 8. 
Blessed shall he be who repays you for what you have done. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's not just every baby, any baby, it's your babies. The Bible teaches us that people should and will receive what we deserve. It sets a limit, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but it upholds the notion of retribution. And my brothers and sisters, when we lose the notion of retribution, we lose the cross. And when we lose the cross, we lose the gospel of our salvation. And our society has ditched retribution. We no longer have a department of prisons, we have a department of corrective services. Straight out of the playbook of Joseph Stalin. Utilitarian social engineering is not justice, is not retribution. The psalm is classic in its illustration of retribution, clear and unmistakable. Isaiah 13 is an oracle against Babylon, speaking of God's executing his anger on the evil city by raising up a foreign army, mustering up troops to destroy Babylon, including dashing their infants to pieces. Verse 18 of that uh, Isaiah 13, their bows will cut young men to pieces. They'll have no compassion on little ones. They will not look with pity on children. And this understanding of justice has the intuitive force of the victims of every age who are never satisfied till they see the perpetrators punished. The executions of Nuremberg, the execution of Osama bin Laden, and even in this last week, the Americans killing Al-Zahiri, I can't pronounce the name, I'm sorry. But you see it outside of the courtrooms of Sydney, where victims stand crying for justice, not leniency, justice. We want the criminal to, be, to pay for his crime. We're paying for it in the loss of our child, in the loss of our, our husband. Or the loss. We're paying for it. We want them to pay for it. Make no mistake, God is just and will bring judgment. There will be payment for sin. It's appointed unto every man to die once and then... Justice, judgment comes. Those of us, like the effete, entitled upper-class undergraduates of Oxford in the depression of all times, who have not endured pain and suffering of the warfares of this world, in other words, Australia today, for the only memories of it we really have are of people in their 90s and 80s and the threat of Japan. It's a long time since Japan threat. We've lived in a time of peace and prosperity. We know nothing of pain and suffering, of the inhumanity of warfare. 
we need to be very, very wary of our self-righteous sentimentality, which wants to remove the verses of the scriptures that deal with the reality of most people's lives in history and even around the world today. Thirdly, the verse shows us something that we don't like, namely the corporate nature of sin and justice. You may want to wash your hands of the nation's decisions, but you can't. Not without renouncing your citizenship and leaving for another nation. We invaded Iraq under Mr Howard's government. We dropped bombs on the Islamic slate. You can say, well, look, I didn't vote for Mr Howard. I didn't vote for Mr Abbott. And, but that's an irrelevancy. When a foreign power invades us, it's irrelevant who you voted for. When a foreign power invades, we're at war and they will drop their bombs on any building they want to, whether you're in it or not. We want to complain about the innocent people in the world trade. When they came down in 2001, I mean, those years ago, all those people, innocent people, all those poor little girls of Nigeria who were kidnapped by Boko Haram back in 2014, or the terrible suffering of people who are caught up in this war or that war in Syria. Or... But they were also part of the world system that the terrorists feel oppresses them unjustly and you and your children will suffer your decisions in life as part of the society in which you're in. O sons of Adam, for sin is corporate, and so will be judgment. It's not a teaching we like, but in Adam, we all became sinful and left the garden. Fourthly, the verse reminds us of the reality of one's highest joys. It's one thing to say, I believe in God. It's another thing to say, it's another thing to have God as your God. For the psalmist, his greatest joy is Jerusalem. Its destruction can't be ignored. The destroyer must be punished. Is humanity our greatest joy, that crimes against humanity are the worst things possible? Or is Christ your greatest joy? And blaspheming his name causes you deep distress. Would you be like the Apostle Paul in Athens, deeply distressed by idolatry? Or do you want to buy a little Buddha to put in your garden like the other Australians around about you? It's nice artwork. It shows I'm culturally sensitive. The horrors of blaspheming the name of God come from understanding your highest joys are found in Christ Jesus who, calls, who brings you by his spirit to call God your father. Finally and most importantly, this verse reminds us that there is no forgiveness without atonement. People want to forgive rather than to punish, and that's right. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. But forgiveness without punishment is not forgiveness. It's acceptance. It's a different thing. And acceptance is acceptance of evil. There's no justice in acceptance. There's no forgiveness in acceptance. There's just approval in acceptance. You've done that, that's all right. Doesn't matter. We aren't forgiven because God has forgotten about our sin or because our sin is only minor and of no real horror. I mean, sometimes someone steps on my toe in a bus well, the atonement is paid by me and my poor toe. I have the pain, you have the forgiveness. I don't chastise you for retaliation. I just turn the other foot. But when the God, when the city of God is destroyed by the enemies of God, when the little ones are barbarically slaughtered, when such sin is exposed, then punishment is required. And that's when Jesus chose. And that's why Jesus chose to die on the cross. That's why Jesus chose to die, and he had to die. And that's why the crucifixion is just so utterly barbaric. Because our sin, your sin, my sin, is so appalling in our rebellion against God. We, my brothers and sisters, are so ghastly. It required God to take upon himself the horror of the full force of our sinfulness for us to be genuinely pardoned and forgiven. Justice had to be done in the full for forgiveness to be available for us. Because sin is so awful, justice is so harsh. And therefore, God's love is so amazing. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And this is how God shows his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave His son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Don't leave out verse 9. 
and don't defend it. Preach it, my brothers and sisters. For as you preach it, you'll understand justice. And as you understand justice, you'll understand mercy. And you'll fall at the feet of the one who loves us so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for your love to him for, and for us, and his faithfulness even unto death, that your son should die for our sin. We praise you for everlastingly, Father, for the wonders of your grace. And we praise you only through the name of the one that we can praise you, even Jesus, our Lord.